have a youth group from Birmingham, Birmingham, is it Birmingham, Alabama, um, North Park Baptist Church, so thank you for joining us. Uh, they are doing a mission trip on their spring, spring break, and so thank you for coming and, and worshiping with us today. Last summer, I took a trip to Colorado with a group of younger guys that I was discipling, guys in their 20s, and we had a blast, whitewater rafting, um, driving ATVs around the mountains, hiking, just really enjoying ourselves. And unlike three weeks ago, this story is actually true, okay? Um, We were scheduled to fly back to Denver on a Sunday afternoon, um, planning on, hoping to get back in time to get a good night's rest for all of our respective jobs on Monday morning. But as we approach the airport, you know what's going to happen. You get that dreaded notification on your phone. Your flight is delayed. And it was only delayed by an hour at that point. But as we were... um, waiting in line to, to um, check our bags, and we got another notification that it was delayed even further, like three hours. We, we weren't going to arrive into Nashville until the wee hours of the morning. And so, you know, I start thinking, I bet you Southwest, Air, Southwest Airlines, who we were flying, has another flight that might be leaving at around the same time or a little bit after that can get us there earlier. So I checked into that on my phone. It didn't work out. But another guy on the trip was, was looking at his phone. He decided to check other airlines. He checked United Airlines. And sure enough, there was a flight that left about the same time, just a little bit earlier than our original flight that got us back to Nashville, even earlier. And bonus, this flight was cheaper. And so we, we all entered our, our names and our birth dates into his little phone and his little smartphone, double-checked it all, um, saw the price, it, it worked, and we pressed buy. And um, we're like, yes, we are travel-savvy geniuses. We're going to get back to Nashville sooner than we thought. We were feeling quite proud of ourselves. We were in. And so we canceled our Southwest Airlines flight and ran quickly over to the other side of the airport to check into our United flight. It, this was, we had to act quickly because this was leaving um, in less than an hour, and there was a long line, long security line. Uh, this is the middle of summer in, um, in Denver, Colorado, and there was probably a good half an hour security line, and our flight was leaving in 45 minutes. So we, we ran over to the United Airlines uh, kiosk where you can check in, and we, we put our, entered our, our um, what is it called, the... Confirmation number, that's what it is. Entered a confirmation number in there, and it said, you are not within the time parameter of checking into your flight. And we're like, this, this isn't right. This isn't right. We just, we just bought this. So we, oh, we must be too close to boarding. And so, so we ran to the, 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 some of you know where this is going. We, we ran, ran to the, um, the friendly United Airlines representative behind the counter, and um, and told them our dilemma. Hey, this won't let us check in. They looked up our information, and, and the, the airline representative confirmed that we were booked on the flight for August 13th. Unfortunately, it was June 13th. We thought we were in, but we were actually out. We thought we were okay, but we were further away from getting home. We did make it home. I'm here, okay? Um, So just calm your fears. Now, now when it comes to an airline flight to a destination, thinking you're in when you're actually out is merely a minor inconvenience. But the stakes get a lot higher when it comes to your eternal destination. And thinking you're in when you're actually out is a matter of eternal life and death. This is why one of the scariest passages in the Bible are the words of Jesus in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, 
where he says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does, my, does the will of the, my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That, that, those, are, those are sobering words from Jesus. In other words, it's possible to be very religious, but very lost. It's possible to think you're okay to believe you're in, but still be far from the heart of God and in danger of being separated from him for eternity. And, and the parable we're going to look at this morning illustrates this, this very truth. And since you're at a church service this morning, instead of sleeping in, sleeping off the hangover from partying, partying late into the night, that puts you in what most people would call the religious category, okay? So it's vitally important for you to hear the message of this parable. It's a well-known parable. It's one that has, has historically been called the parable of the prodigal son. How many of you have heard of it? Okay, quite a few of you. The parable of the prodigal son or the parable of the lost son. But it's actually a mistake. It's a huge oversight to think that this parable is just about one son. It's actually a story about two sons. After all, Jesus starts the parable with the phrase, a man had two sons, a younger brother and an older brother. And Jesus intends for us to compare and to contrast them as we read this parable. So just like we have appropriately renamed the parable of the rich fool a few weeks ago to the parable of the middle class fool. We're going to rename this parable as well, and we're going to call it this, the parable of the lost sons, plural. Okay, the parable of the lost sons, plural. So if you brought a Bible with you this morning, go ahead and open it to Luke chapter 15. If you didn't, don't worry about it. Well, the words will be up on the screen. You can also grab a Bible from the Connect Point if you don't have a Bible of your own as a gift, our gift to you. As we dive into this parable together, I'd like to express my indebtedness to the work of Dr. Edmund Clowney. He's an Orthodox Presbyterian pastor and theologian that passed away back in 2005. And, but his work has lived on through the writings and the teaching of a pastor named Timothy Keller out in New York City. If you've never read Timothy Keller's book, The Prodigal God, you have my permission right now to tune me out for about 30 seconds. Go to, go to the Amazon app on your phone. Order that book. It it's a life-transforming book, one of the best books that I've ever read on the Christian life. And as we examine the parable in its textual and cultural context this morning, it's going to show us two things. One, there's two ways to be lost. Secondly, one way to be found. So it's going to show us two ways to be lost and one way to be found. So if you're taking notes, that's going to be our simple outline for this morning. As Jordan pointed out last week, the, the parable of the lost sons is actually the third part of a trilogy of parables that Jesus tells in response to something that has happened at the beginning of Luke chapter 15. And, and since, what, what were the, what's the most in, in, important part of interpreting parables? Remember? Three things. 
Context, context, context. Since that's so important, let's go back and examine the context of why Jesus is telling this parable. So right at the beginning of Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, we read this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So there's two groups of people here um, that are surrounding Jesus as he tells this parable of the lost sons. There's the irreligious, the the tax collectors, the sinners. And then there's the religious, the the Pharisees, the scribes. The irreligious are drawing near to Jesus, and the religious are getting their loincloths and a wad over it. Okay, They are upset about it. And, and we're about to see that Jesus ingeniously represents both of these groups in this parable. They're meant to see themselves in the parable that he tells of the lost sons. Let's dive in with verse 11. And he said to them, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. Okay, time out. Pause here. Because at this point, you would have heard an audible gasp from the original audience. In that culture, inheritances were only passed on after a father died. And at that point, the older brother would receive, or the eldest brother would receive a double portion of the inheritance. So so if there were just two sons, the eldest brother would get two-thirds, and the younger brother would get one-third. But this younger son approaches his father while he's still alive... And says, I want my share of the estate now. This is shocking. This this wouldn't have happened normally in that day. One commentator puts it this way. To ask for the inheritance while the father is still alive is to wish him dead. Is to wish him dead. What the younger brother is saying is, Father, I want your things, but I don't want you. My relationship with you is just a means to an end. I'm tired of it now, and I want my inheritance now. I want my stuff now. The level of disrespect here in this request would have been unheard of in that culture. But even more shocking is what we read at the end of verse 12. They would have been astonished at what the father in this story did. What does he do at the end of verse 12? And he divided his property between them. A traditional Middle Eastern father would have been expected to disown this disrespectful son on the spot and kick him out of the house. That would have been the standard response. But, but that's not what happens. Instead, this, this father gives the younger son his portion of the inheritance. But in order to do this, you've got to understand that this father would have had to sell off a third of his property, a third of his land. And that day, land meant everything. Our, our, this version uses the word property here, that he divided his property among them. But the Greek word is bios. It's where we get our English word biology. It means life. Jesus actually says he divided his life between them. Now, why would Jesus put it that way? Well, in that culture, to lose part of your land was to lose your standing in the community, which was tied to how much land you had. The son is asking his father to literally tear his life apart, to tear apart his standing in the community, to tear apart himself. And what's astounding is that the father actually does it. 
He lovingly and graciously chooses to endure rejected love and total disrespect from his younger son. Let's read on, verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a famine, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him into the, his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. This is about as low as a Jewish boy can get. You know, what were pigs to a Jewish family? An unclean animal. You, you, you didn't associate with them. You didn't go near them. And here he is trying to make ends meet by feeding pigs, and he's not even eating as well as the pigs. He's hit rock bottom. But then he comes to his senses. He, he realizes he's in a pickle. He recognizes the folly of his way, ways, and he comes up with a plan. Verse 17. Let's read on. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with this hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So he comes up with this plan, and his plan is in line with the cultural sensibilities of the day. The Jewish rabbis taught that if someone had violated community mores, the only way back into the community was to pay some sort of restitution. A mere apology wouldn't cut it. So this prodigal son plans to ask his father to make him as one of his hired servants. His plan is, is to enter into a lifetime of work trying to pay his father restitution for what he's done, for how he's squandered his inheritance. And he rehearses his plan in his head ahead of time, doesn't he? I've sinned against heaven and against you. I know I can't be your son. I know I can't come back into the family, so treat me as a hired servant. At least that way I can even begin to pay back all that you've lost. I can pay you back a little bit at least for what I've done. Verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And, and again, there would have been shock expressed by the original audience. Why? Well, first of all, Middle Eastern patriarchs did not run. Children ran, but... But the men didn't. That would have required lifting up your robes and burying your legs. Or anything. That would have been disgraceful. But this father in the parable is so overcome with emotions, he doesn't care. And just at the, the first sight of his son, he runs to him in utter emotional abandonment, throwing off all decorum, and with joy embraces him and kisses him. Verse 21, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. So, so what does the younger son do? He, he starts enacting his plan. Remember, he had already rehearsed this in his head while he was feeding pigs. And he, same wording. He, he starts, starts his little PowerPoint presentation here. <laughs> so the younger son enacts his plan and, and, and starts um, telling the father what he'd rehearsed. But the father interrupts him mid-sentence. And the father said to him, verse 22, bring quickly the best robe, 
This would have been the father's robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Notice here that the father doesn't wait for the wayward son to take a bath and clean himself up. He doesn't wait. No, in putting his robe over his rags and his ring on the son's finger and his shoe on his feet, the father is telling him this. You're not going to earn your way back into the family. I'm bringing you back as a son. We'll come back to unpack the significance of that thought in just a second, so hold on to it. But for now, let's move on to act two of the parable, okay? This is a parable in two acts. The, 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 the camera angle focuses on the younger son in the first part, but then it swings and goes to the older brother. Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near the, to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. And he was angry. And refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, and you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, notice he doesn't even claim him as his brother, when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? Really? So instead of sharing the father's joy at the repentance and the return of the younger son, the older son experiences a different emotion, doesn't he? What is it? What's the emotion? Anger. Anger. He's ticked off, really ticked off. But the father goes out to him and implores him to come into the party. But what does the older son do? He throws a fit. And starts making a big deal out of this fattened calf. And as 21st century readers, we read this and go, okay, I think the fattened calf means something, but maybe I'm missing something here. And indeed we are. You need to know something about this. In that culture, you almost never ate meat for a meal. That was a a special occasion to have meat. And if you did have meat, it was either goat meat, which is fairly cheap, or perhaps an older cow that had stopped giving milk. But the greatest and most expensive delicacy in that culture would be, would be to slay a fattened calf, one who hadn't even grown up to its full potential yet. Very, very expensive. This is a once-in-a-lifetime type thing for a typical family. This isn't the sort of thing that would also just be a private family event. No, the whole village would have been invited to celebrate the feast of a fattened calf because of the expense. But the older brother objects to the party. He's really upset how his father is spending their wealth. I've obeyed you. I haven't squandered your wealth like this loser, and I should have some say in this is his general attitude. And he's so angry, so upset about it, that he insults his father. First, by publicly refusing his request. He just didn't do that as a son in that day. He publicly refuses his request to join the feast. And secondly, he even refuses to address him as father. In verse 29, he simply says, Look, you, 
there's a deliberate, this is a deliberate and disrespectful insult. His general attitude is that the father owes him because of his good behavior. And we begin to see here that the heart of the older brother isn't that much different than the heart of the younger son. This older son just has a different strategy for getting the father's stuff. In his self-righteous anger, he publicly humiliates his father by refusing probably the biggest party that he's ever thrown. And he further humiliates him in front of the guests by addressing him in a disrespectful manner. And at this point, the original audience would expect just one thing, for this father to now disown this son and kick him out of the house. But instead, the father responds with a tender, with tenderness in his voice, with love, with grace. Verse 31. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For, for this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And suddenly the parable's over, just like that. It's done. And we're left sitting on the edge of our seats wondering how the older brother is going to respond, which gives us a major clue as to where Jesus was aiming his arrow with this parable, doesn't it? How is the older brother going to respond? I mentioned earlier this parable teaches us that there's two ways to be lost and one way to be found. Two ways to be lost, one way to be found. Two ways to be alienated from the heart of the Father. Two ways to reject God. And these two ways are perfectly illustrated by the two sons in this parable. The most obvious way to be lost is along the irreligious path of self-actualization. This is the self-fulfilling strategy of the younger brother in this parable. He wants to throw off all moral constraints, live life how he wants to live, and party it up. That's the path that this younger brother takes. And, And it's a path that we should easily recognize in our culture. Just listen to these messages that we're often fed. You've probably heard these before. You've got to be true to yourself. How many of you heard that? You've got to be true to yourself. In the end, you have to do what makes you happy. You do you. Nobody has the right to tell you what's right and wrong for you. As long as you're not harming anyone else, live however you want to live. Have you never heard that before? Go watch some Disney movies, okay? This is the path of self-actualization, and the younger brother chooses this path. Now, quick pop quiz. Who in the context of this parable would have related to the younger brother? Remember back to the beginning of the chapter? Who's around Jesus? Tax collectors and sinners, Pharisees and scribes. Now, now who in that bunch would have related to the younger brother? The tax collectors and sinners, those morally outcast people there at the beginning who were gathering near to hear Jesus. Now, the father in this parable obviously represents God. So so what's the good news for people along this first life path of self-actualization? Well, if they come to the self-destructive end of self-indulgence and acknowledge that they are wallowing with the pigs, if they recognize their spiritual bankruptcy and return to the Father, what's the good news? They won't face judgment. They won't face punishment. 
They won't have to pay restitution for what they've done. They won't even have to clean themselves up first. Scandalous, if you're religious. They will immediately find overwhelming love and forgiveness and acceptance in the arms of a heavenly father who's welcoming them home with joy. The message is clear. There's more grace in God than sin in us. Say that with me. There's more grace in God than sin is us. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. That's the message in the first part of the parable. But there's another way to be lost that's illustrated by the older brother, who in the context of the parable would, would have, um, who are the people who would have related to the older brother? The Pharisees and scribes, the, the religious those who are upset over Jesus hanging out with the younger brother types. And so here's the main point of this parable. Not only can you be lost on the irreligious path of self-actualization, you can also be lost on the path of self-justification, which is often a religious one. In other words, it's just as possible to be alienated from God in religion as it is in irreligion. And the barbs of this truth were meant to snag the minds and hearts of the self-righteous religious leaders who, in the context of this parable, were grumbling about Jesus accepting sinners. Both the path of religious self-justification and the path of self-actualization are dangerous. But hear this. The religious path is a little bit more sinister. Why? Why? Because people on the path of irreligion oftentimes recognize that they're lost. They'll usually admit, yeah, if there is a God, I'm in trouble, okay? If that's true, I'm going straight to hell. They'll readily admit that usually. Now they doubt that it's true. But at least they're not self-deceived in that regard. But people on the path of religion, religious self-justification are often blind to the fact that they're in just as much eternal trouble. Their goodness deceives them and keeps them from recognizing that they are indeed lost. And if you're re- religious and here this morning, you might be on that path. All of your morality, all of your obedience might just be your way of manipulating God to give you what you really want, which isn't necessarily God himself. You might think to yourself, I've been so good, God owes me a good life. That's the heart attitude of the elder brother type in this parable. And you'll inevitably end up bitter and angry at God when life doesn't turn out how you think it ought to turn out. When he doesn't bless you as you've earned and deserved in your own thought and mind for being so good. And you'll probably even jettison your so-called faith. In his self-discovery, the younger brother was really, really bad. In his moral conformity, the older brother was really, really good. But both were alienated from the heart of the father. 
Each one of them wanted the father's things, but not the father. Each one of them used the father to get what they really loved. The younger did it by being very, very bad. The older did it by being very, very good. But they were both lost. And in the end, the surprising twist of this parable is that the lover of prostitutes is saved. But the moral conformist stays lost. At least as far as we know. And he was not lost because of being bad. No, he was lost because of being good. His own words reveal this to us when he explains his reasoning for not going into the feast. Here's the reason I reject your invitation, Father. I have never disobeyed you. Did you catch that? I've never disobeyed you. He was blind to his own sin of self-righteousness. He was proud of his goodness, and it was his pride that was alienating him from the heart of his father, his father's gracious and forgiving heart. These two brothers perfectly illustrate the, the main two ways that people throughout history have tried to find meaningness, meaning and happiness, meaningness, I just made up a word, meaning and happiness in life. The two ways that people try to be their own Lord and Saviors. The religious moral conformists say, I'm going to be really good. I'm going to deny what I really want. I'm going to deny myself. I'm not going to do what I want to do. I'm going to comply. I'm going to submit. I'm going to be good. I'm going to work hard to please the younger brother types say, forget that. I've got to be true to myself. I'm going to decide what's right and wrong for me. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to live how I want to live. I'm going to find my true self. Pastor Timothy Keller, who I referenced earlier, puts it this way. Each side says, this is the way the world would be better. Each side says, this is the way you'll be happy. Jesus says, you're both wrong. You're both lost. You're both making the world a terrible place in different ways. The elder brothers of the world divide the world in two. They say the good people are in and the bad people are out. The self-discovery younger brothers also divide the world into two. They say the open-minded, progressive-minded people are in and the bigoted and judgmental people are out. And Jesus says neither. He says it's the humble who are in and the proud who are out. It's the people who know they're not good, know they're not good enough, not open-minded enough, and that they need sheer grace who are in. And the people who ever think they're on the right side of those divides that both sides make up, they're the ones who are out. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not religion or irreligion. It's not morality or immorality. It's not moralism or relativism. It's off the scales. It's not halfway in the middle. It's something else entirely. But the default mode of every human heart, whether moral or immoral, religious or irreligious, self-discovery or moral conformity, is self-justification in the end. It's being your own Savior and Lord, trying to control things, trying to control people, but neither self-discovery nor moral conformity gets deep enough to get at what's really wrong with the world and with you and me. So that leads us to a question then. So how can then we be saved? Which leads us to the last part of our outline this morning. Well, there's two ways to be lost. What's the other part of our outline? Thank you, Gabe. One way 
to be found. One way to be found. First of all, receive the initiating love of God. Receive the initiating love of God. Did you notice in the parable the father goes out to both sons in order to bring them in? He goes out to the younger brother and kisses him even before he repents. The repentance does not trigger the kiss. The kiss facilitates the repentance. And the father also goes out to the older brother in this parable. Jesus says over in John chapter 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. You're not going to seek God unless he first seeks you. And if you're a younger brother type who's happened to come to a church service today, you're not really sure why you came, can I suggest to you that it may be more than just curiosity? Maybe, just maybe, it's a heavenly Father's gracious heart drawing you to himself today. And if you're an older brother type, who's proud of your goodness, but you're suddenly wondering, well, maybe I haven't been good enough. Well, newsflash, you haven't. We might look under that rock called pride and find something there. The realization that maybe you're not good enough may very well be the initiating love of a father awakening to your need to trust in Jesus as your Savior and not your moral resume. Beckoning you, as the old hymn says, to lay your deadly doing down. I love that phrase. Lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him and him alone, gloriously complete. So first, receive the initiating love of the Father. Secondly, acknowledge that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. Acknowledge that you are a sinner in need of a of a Savior. Turn from your sin and turn to Jesus. You know what that's called? It's called repentance. It's called repentance. But this is much more than just repenting of the obvious sins of the younger brother types, okay? Yes, we absolutely need to repent of those things. But we also need to repent not of just the things we do wrong, but like the older brother in this parable, we also need to repent of the wrong reasons that we do right. Did you catch that? Not only do we need to repent of what we've done wrong, we need to repent of the wrong reasons that we do right. Keep in mind that Jesus is pointing this parable at the, the Pharisees and the scribes, and they were squeaky clean moralists, okay? They were doing everything right, but for the wrong reasons. And that's just as sinful. Of course, true Christians repent for what they've done wrong, but they also recognize that the reason that they often do what's right is self-justification and a desire to control God and others. And when a person begins to repent of that, when that penny drops, when you begin to see the desire to be your own Savior and Lord, not only behind the bad things that you've done, but also behind the good things, When you say, that's got to change, and I desperately need Jesus because of my twisted motivations to do good, when that can opens and you begin to see the stench inside of it, that's when transformation happens. That's when that epiphany happens, that you can be just as lost doing good, everything changes. When you repent of your twisted motivations... 
It changes the way you relate with others. It changes the way you relate with God. Everything. It's so different and transformative and radical. You know what we call it? We call it new birth. New birth. You're a new person at that point. So how can you be found? One, receive the initiating love of the Father. Two, acknowledge your need for a Savior. Thirdly, trust in Jesus as your true elder brother. Trust in Jesus as your true elder brother. And you're like, that sounds weird. What does that mean? Well, let me explain. Jesus gives us an example of a bad older brother in this parable so that we'll long for a good one. When the younger son came home, at first glance, it looks like it didn't cost anything. He's immediately brought in and gets the father's robe and the ring and shoes. He's reinstated as a son, seemingly for free, at least to him. But think about it. If the father had already liquidated everything and divided his estate, every single thing the father now had officially belonged to who? It's not rhetorical. Talk to me. The older brother. The robe, the ring, the shoes, the fattened calf, everything. Remember the words of the father in the parable to the elder brother? Son, everything I have is yours. The younger brother could only be brought in, brought back in as a son into the family at enormous cost to who? The elder brother. It's not free. The elder brother has to foot the bill, but he's not happy about it. In fact, he's furious about it. In the same way, it's not free to be saved from your sins. Somebody has to foot the bill. Somebody has to pay. What would a true and better elder brother do? if, If this had been a good elder brother in this story, what would he have done? Again, I'll quote Timothy Keller here because he says it better than I ever could. A true elder brother would have seen the agony of the father over losing the younger son and said, Father, I'm going to go out and look for my brother. And if he has ruined himself and has squandered all his inheritance, I'll bring him home, even at my own expense. That would have been a true elder brother. This poor younger brother, he doesn't have a true elder brother. But my friends, we do. In the person of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior who in this story gives us a bad example of an elder brother so that our hearts will long for him. I'm going to invite the band back up right now. And as they come, I want you to hear this. It's important. We don't just need an elder brother to go over to the next town to find us and bring us back. We need someone to come from heaven to earth. We don't need an elder brother who brings us into God's family just at the cost of his wallet but at the cost of his life. On the cross, Jesus was stripped naked so that we could be clothed in the robe of righteousness and honor that we don't deserve. On the cross, Jesus called out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because for the first time, and that's the first time he never called him father. And why? Because that's the first time that he wasn't being treated as a son so that you, And I could be. There he paid the debt that we all owe. Jesus had everything the Father had, but he shares it with us the wayward younger brothers.
and brings us home at great expense to himself, his life on a cross. When you trust in Jesus as your true elder brother, you won't be into self-actualization and self-discovery. You won't be into self-justification and moral conformity. No, you'll jettison both. When you trust in Jesus, you'll jettison both as ways to be your own Lord and Savior. When you trust in Jesus as your true elder brother, then and only then will you become a true Christian. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this message from this parable. Lord, it it hits us as um, kind of right between the eyes, both because both of us have parts, uh, younger brother parts to our stories and oftentimes elder brother parts to our stories. Usually we lean one way or the other, but Father, we all need Jesus. We all need a Savior. We all need rescue from our, the ways that we um, try to be our own Lord and Savior, either through self-fulfilling, um, throwing off of moral constraints or, or trying to uh, be our own Savior by, by uh, moral conformity. Father, we need Jesus, and we recognize that. We need your initiating love to come out to us and beckon us home, no matter what path we're on, no matter whether we've been really, really bad or really, really good. We need to repent. And if we've been really, really good, we need to lay our deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet, standing in him and him alone, gloriously complete. That's our prayer. Amen.